And if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, this is where we're, Lord willing, going to end up this evening uh, as we come to end the sermon. Uh, and again, we're continuing on in the, what I like to call, forever series on Christ and his threefold offices, prophet, priest, and king. It seems like we've been looking at these things uh, for a while. I look back and it's been about two years that we've been working through uh, these truths of who Christ is. And there's, there's so much to mine here. You know, it sure really shouldn't surprise us that it takes us a long time to work through seeing and savoring and, and unpacking what the scriptures tell us of who Christ is. Really, all of eternity is going to be delving deeper into the greatness of who our Savior is. We know that our God is an infinite being, and to know an infinite being requires an infinite amount of time. And so that's, I think, one of the reasons why Jesus says that this is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so we're getting a bit of a taste of what eternity is like as we grow in our knowledge of our Savior. And so we have considered Christ as both prophet and priest, and now we're continuing on at our look at the kingly office. And this evening, I'd like us to consider the king and his cross. The king and his cross. I often wonder what would have happened if Dwight Eisenhower was not responsible for planning and, and orchestrating, of course, there were many other people involved, but he was the leader of the Allied forces in the European theater of war in World War II. In many ways, he is credited with bringing about the defeat of the Nazis. Now, we know that there were many men involved in that, but as he came out of World War II, what did he, what ended up, did he end up becoming? President of the United States. And we all love, in many senses, a winner. We love to see people. We love to have our heroes be the ones that win, that seem to bring about the victory. And so in, in some regards, it is against conventional wisdom, it is against human wisdom to talk about our king and then use that term in the same sentence as referring to a cross, particularly his cross. The cross, which we have taken today to be a symbol of Christianity, and rightly we should, I think has in many ways been robbed of the horror that it represented in the first century. Today we dress it up and we clad them in gold, we wear them around our necks, we have them nicely apportioned in houses, and, and we look at them as sort of this wonderful symbol of Christianity, but in the first century, and particularly before Christ himself went to the cross, the cross would be more akin to our modern day noose. It was an instrument of punishment. It was an instrument of execution. And in fact, when Christ was on the cross, as he was hung there, there was an inscription placed above his head. What did that inscription say? The king of the Jews. And Pilate did not put that there to recognize the legitimacy of Christ's kingdom. Rather, he put it there to mock 
the Jews, to say, this is your king. Look at the power of Rome as we have killed your supposed king. And so when we consider Christ and we consider particularly his kingly office, we must not, we cannot separate from it his cross work. And while this may fly in the face of conventional wisdom, it is nonetheless the very means by which Christ most clearly demonstrated that he is king. The cross is the lifting up of the king of the universe for all the world to see. And it is through the cross, through his being lifted up, that Jesus says he will draw all men to himself. And so while the cross from a human perspective, represents defeat, judgment, and punishment. It is right for us to cherish the cross because in the cross we see our king victorious. So that's what I'd like us to consider here this evening, the king and his cross. Let's go ahead and read Psalm 22. We'll pray and then we'll make our way through the message this evening. Psalm 22 is to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn. This was likely a tune that would have been known uh, to the ancient Hebrews. A psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not Put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. They trust in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble is near. And there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. 
I count over all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard. When he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him. Shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you that many millennia ago, your spirit moved upon the heart of David to pen these words. And as David spoke of the anguish of his own soul, as he himself faced many enemies and faced many perilous times. Lord, you, through the work of your spirit in him, caused him to write of greater things. As he spoke of the king, his son and also your son displaying his kingship in his suffering on the cross. So Lord, quiet our hearts this evening. Calm us as we stand in awe of our king and his cross work for us. We pray this in his name, pleading his blood. Amen. Well, again, we're looking at the king and his cross, and I love reading Psalm 22. It's a psalm of such encouragement, such sorrow, yet such hope. Now, again, we mentioned that 
Most people think or consider a king to be someone who wins, a victorious, strong king. But yet we must never forget that from the beginning of the promise of the curse reverser up through even Jesus' own ministry, there was a clear understanding that he would suffer. And so I want us to look at this suffering as it is foretold in the Old Testament. And then next week we'll look at Christ himself and his anticipation of the cross. And then we'll look at what he does, what he accomplishes on the cross as king. Now again, this suffering and the suffering king was foretold to Adam and Eve. Now again, as we've previously seen, much of what is built um, on these three offices, both all three, prophet, priest, and king, they find their, their sort of seedling ideas in Genesis 3.15, that there would be uh, a prof- a, a one who would come and would speak the truth, that there would be one who would come and exercise dominion, and that there would be one who would, who would come and would serve as a priest. And in Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve have failed to particularly exercise that dominion mandate, if you remember Several months ago, we discussed the different Hebrew words used to refer to God's command to Adam and Eve to go out and to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air. And that, that term has with it the idea of conquest or conquering. And so they were confronted with that opportunity when the serpent came and beguiled them and lied to them. And it was at that point that they were They were intended by God to step up and to exercise conquest and to exercise dominion. But we know that instead of exercising that dominion that God had created them for, they submitted to the words of the serpent. They acquiesced to his lies and sin plunged humanity into sin. That failure leads to a curse. But God, in sheer mercy and grace, provides a promise. And so we see Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity. Now notice that there is a conflict that is now going to occur across this earth that God has created, this fallen earth. There will be enmity between the serpent and the woman, and between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring and the seed of the woman will bruise or strike a fatal blow to the head of the serpent and we love to revel in that and and we see the crushing of satan in that reality but we must never forget the last part of this prophecy what will the serpent do to the seed of the woman bruise his heel A final and fatal blow would be dealt to Satan by what Christ does. This would show conquest and dominion. It is not explicit, but it truly hints at the fact that the seed of the woman would come as a conquering king. But the battle against the enemy of God and humanity would be a victory that comes through suffering. This victory would not come without the cost of suffering as this promised one's heel would be bruised. 
What we have to recognize is from the very beginning of when sin entered the world, there was a understanding that the coming one would have to suffer. And while he would not suffer eternally, while there would not be a victory won over him, nonetheless, there would be a price to pay to bring about conquest over the one whom he was at enmity with. He would bring victory, but not without a cost. So this failure to exercise dominion finds hope in the one who will come and bring victory over the serpent, but who would suffer to bring that about. Now, we could look at a number of different things throughout Israel's history that speak of this suffering. In fact, to some extent, we can see this portrayed in the sacrificial system of Israel. Sin brings death. And over and over again in Israel's sacrifices, there was a clear indication that instead of the Israelites dying because of their sin, a animal would die in place of them. They would act, this animal would act as a substitute. The sins of that person would be placed upon it and the punishment that they deserved would be meted out upon these sacrifices. But what became very clear very shortly is that those sacrifices were not sufficient. And day after day, year after year, blood would flow from the altar of the tabernacle and then later on of the temple in Jerusalem. There would be constant sacrifices. And so this suffering that was inflicted upon these animals that God had created, they were suffering for the sake of those who brought them, brings us to the message of the prophets. And the prophets themselves would speak very clearly of the suffering of Messiah. Now, the prophets of Israel had one primary goal in mind. And oftentimes we think about the prophets and, and we want to either look at them uh, providing um, uh, uh, foretelling of things. And, and even to this day, we look at things that were said in Jeremiah, things that were said in Ezekiel, things that were said particularly in Daniel. And we see um, correlating truths brought up by John in Revelation. And so we look at the prophets and we think of them as these great foretellers, these great predictors, if you will. But their primary role was not to foretell, but to foretell. To call God's people to repentance and faith in him. They were evangelizers. They were gospel people. And they confronted Israel with their sin, confronted them with the consequences of their sins, but also provided hope. And that hope was fully and completely bound up in the promises of the coming Messiah and King who would reestablish God's people. He, the, the prophets speak often of how the borders of Israel will be expanded to not just be limited to the physical location there in Palestine, but that there would be a nation that would be created through this Messiah that would include every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation. 
And so the, the vision of the reestablishment of God's people Israel was always much bigger than just Israel itself. And we today are benefactors of that spiritual work that Christ came to bring. Now when you, when you think of the prophets of Israel, what prophet first comes to your mind? I'm just curious. All right, I, heard, I heard Isaiah. Is that a lot of people, does that pop up? The first one? There's a reason for that. And really, Isaiah stands out as a prophet of this hope. It would have been okay if he would have said one of the other ones, Daniel or Jeremiah. I, I find myself more and more um, maybe commiserating with Jeremiah a little bit in the, the day and age in which he lived is so similar to our day and age. But Isaiah stands out as a prophet of the hope calling Israel to repentance and faith, that becomes the hope of salvation. In fact, Isaiah and his prophecy has often been referred to as an Old Testament gospel book, much in the way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, Luke and John are gospels. Many people will point to Isaiah as the gospel in the Old Testament. And, and in particular, what it is about Isaiah that he points to is he points to this hope in a figure called the servant of the Lord. There are several what we call servant songs that occur throughout Isaiah's book. And these servant songs, these descriptions of the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, mark out for us the details and the description of who the Messiah will be. Now, the servant accomplishes many things, but it's very clear that he is also doing a royal work. And he does this royal work by restoring justice in an unjust world. One of the things we talked about very early on is that in, in the ancient times, one of the primary responsibilities of a king was to establish justice, that they were to rule rightly that a charge was placed upon these kings to seek out justice among their people and of course what we see over and over again not just in the kings of other nations but particularly among god's people israel is do they seek out justice no human kings fail at this in fact one of the greatest injustices recorded in scripture was done by David, who murdered a man, had an, affair, had an affair with his wife, and then murdered him to cover up what he had done. That's not justice. That's a perversion of justice. And so when, when we feel the pull of injustice in this world, which I'm sure we all do, I'm sure we all feel the pull of injustice in this world. We say that's not fair. And the best of the best of human rulers will always fail to bring about justice at some way, in some way, shape, or form. What that should do is it should cause our hearts to ache for Christ. What we read about this morning in 2 Peter where Christ will come back and he will expose all the works done on the earth and then he will establish an earth where righteousness dwells. How our hearts should yearn for that. Because it's in that place that we find justice truly, truly being 
accomplished. And this justice is accomplished by the servant of the Lord. Notice what Isaiah says in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice. And notice, not just to Israel, but to who? The nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Sorry, I'm not sure what's causing the static there. It's a little bit better. Let me try something. Is it still there? I don't know where that static's coming from. There we go. Just had to jingle the right chord. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Here Isaiah provides for us a description of how this servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord will come and will bring about that which only a king can bring about. Notice some things that, that correlate with the kings of Israel here. He is one whom the Lord has chosen. He is my chosen. Remember, Israel's problem with bringing about a king, it was not with the kingly office itself. It was that they said, we want a king now and let us choose this king. And so they chose out Saul. How did that go for them? Terribly. And so this servant of Yahweh is one who he has chosen. One in whom his soul delights. He's one who rules because the spirit of the Lord is upon him. One of the things we see was necessary for Israel's kings to operate successfully and, and in, in um, alliance to the Lord was that they would need the, depend, to depend upon the spirit of God. He's one who comes and does not bring about his conquest through force. What's amazing to note here is he does not cry aloud. He does not lift up his voice. He doesn't make it heard in the street. Rather, he's one who comes and is gentle and lowly. He doesn't break the bruised reed. He doesn't burn out the or put, uh, put out the faintly burning wick. And then he does something that only God himself can do. He faithfully brings forth justice. And as he does so, he does not grow faint or discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. It's very interesting that the, the last phrase there, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. 
The, the word that's used here for discouraged, it has the idea of not, not buckling under the weight or not being crushed. And when I hear that, and actually it's used elsewhere to refer to being bruised. When I hear that, where does my mind, where does your mind go back to? What we looked at in Genesis 3. And while Christ will feel the weight of his work to bring about justice, it will not overwhelm him. He will have victory over it. Now again, God refers to this man, this figure, as his servant, my servant. And that is a term that God uses throughout Scripture, but particularly in Isaiah, to refer to the kings of Israel. Notice what he says, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And so what we find is Yahweh's servant is tasked with the kingly work of establishing justice on the earth. But this task will require great personal difficulty, suffering, and it will place an immense burden on Yahweh's servant. But despite all this, he will still triumph over the servant. Serpent. He will be victorious. Well, as we often think of Isaiah and refer to him as one who describes the work of Messiah, the work of Christ, we also, very quickly, our minds go to, when we think of the suffering of the Messiah, where do our minds go? Isaiah 53. Again, as I, what we see in Isaiah 53, 11, describes the suffering servant as a victorious king. Isaiah 53, 11, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. I think it's important to note here what this verse says. All of those Things that Isaiah or that Messiah accomplishes, they come out of what? The anguish of his soul. Victory emerges through suffering. And notice again what Isaiah describes here. He is a king who sees and is satisfied. This hints at his resurrection and the success of his kingly duty. He accomplishes the conquest. He secures victory. Anguish is what he experiences, but out of that he looks and is satisfied. He's done the work. What was it that Christ said on the cross? It is finished. It's only because Christ was pure, fully and completely dependent upon his work and looking to what he had accomplished 
that he could tell the thief on the cross with confidence, today you will be with me where? In paradise. I mean, that is, that is amazing to see the demonstration of Christ's confidence, his seeing and being satisfied demonstrated in those words. Here he is dying a criminal's death, dying an excruciating death. And yet he knows he's won. As he tells this man who his entire life has been wrapped up in the darkness of this world, that he would be with him in paradise. So he sees and is satisfied. He is the righteous one. Only the righteous one. One who possesses righteously innately can be the true king of Israel. And God declares him to be my servant, the righteous one. It is through this knowledge of the righteous one that he brings justification to many. There's some debate as to, to what knowledge, like, like which way is this knowledge going? Is it the Messiah's knowledge of those whom he's going to save? Or is it those whom he's going to save's knowledge of him? And I would propose to you it's both. Justification comes both by the servant's knowledge of his offspring and also the knowledge of the servant by those who are counted righteous. And this is what we see laid out in the New Testament. Jesus chooses to save his people, but he saves his people by bringing them to know him. And so it is through the knowledge of Christ, him knowing us and us knowing him, that he brings about many to be counted as righteous. That's what justification means. And again, remember, this is coming on the heels of Isaiah describing the immense suffering of Christ. The man of sorrows, the one acquainted with grief, the one crushed by the Father and underneath the full impact of His wrath. And yet, in this, He emerges as a victorious King. Because he victoriously bears the iniquities of his people. Why does the suffering servant of Isaiah, why does this king face anguish? Because of our sins. He does not suffer on his own behalf. If you remember the thief on the cross, he rebukes the other thief. He says, why are you mocking this man? He, we are receiving what we deserve. We're suffering justly. But this man has done nothing worthy of death. And so while he is crushed by the wrath of God the Father, he is not crushed by sin. 
This is an important distinction to keep in mind. Throughout the entire work of the cross, Christ was displaying victory. As he faced that cross, as he faced its anguish, and we'll look at next week, that anguish was not a small thing. As Jesus prayed in the garden, he prayed, Lord, my, my God, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet he willingly faced and endured that suffering for our sake. He took our sins upon his body on the tree. So that we who are dead in our sins should live in Christ Jesus. By his stripes we have been healed. That is why before Christ dies, he cries out, it is finished. That is not the cry of someone who has been beaten. It is the cry of a victor. It is the cry of a king. He is bringing to completion the promise that God made to Adam and Eve all the way back in Genesis 3.15. So this suffering is foretold to Adam and Eve. This suffering is foretold by the prophets. We focused on Isaiah. There are other prophets we could go to. The message is the same over and over again. But that brings us now to what we read before we began. And that's Psalm 22. I know you're thinking, are we going to actually get to this today? Yes, we are. It's interesting to me to note what the Psalms are. What are the Psalms? They're songs. They were meant to be used in worship. And it's interesting to note that such explicit discussion of the suffering of the Messiah becomes the focus of one of God's Psalms. One that is quoted often in the New Testament. And in fact, there may perhaps be no better passage that describes the king and his suffering better than Psalm 22. As we read through this, and then as you think of what Christ endured on the cross, are the connections not uncanny? Isn't the description amazingly specific? And this was written thousands of years before Jesus died on the cross. The detail at which Christ's suffering is foretold in this psalm is stunning. Now, we're not going to go through and rehash everything here that we read, but I just want to sort of generalize some of the things that we see in Psalm 22. We see, first of all, that the suffering of the king would be caused by being forsaken by the Father. Verse 1 of Psalm 22 is quoted by Christ himself on the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It provides a clear connection between this psalm and his kingly work. Now what is important to note here, at no time does God, not, does God cease to be Christ's God. 
Even in this cry, he cries out, you are still my God. But yet he recognizes and sees that sin has caused the father's face to turn away from the son because he is of such pure eyes, he cannot even look upon sin. And God, the father, made Christ the son to be what? Sin. For us. We see that he is dehumanized by his captors. In verse 6, he says, I am a worm and not a man. Do you understand the, the significance of that statement? The eternal king of glory has even the very basic decency that humanity expects stripped away from him on that cross. You realize that Christ was stripped completely naked. His body was beaten beyond recognition. And this had been going on for hours. He faced the scourge of the cat of nine tails, ripping chunks of flesh from his skin. It would have been a bloody, gory sight. And underneath the cross, what were the crowds doing? Mocking him. His own people, the religious leaders of that day, beat their chests and looked at him. And If you're the Messiah, come down. We'll believe in you. If you come down from the cross. Both Jew and Gentile would view Christ as lesser than a man. On that day. Forsaken by the father. He's dehumanized by his captors. And then we see the very nature of the physical suffering of Christ. Described here in detail. speaks about how he's poured out like water in verse 14 and his bones are out of joint. As we understand what was required in crucifixion as, as the, the cross would be set into place and the arms were either tied or nailed to the cross, Christ's, Christ's body nailed to the cross, as he would be set into place, the gravity would pull on his body and his shoulders would be dislocated. And as a result of that, every breath would be excruciating, searing pain as he would have to lift himself up to breathe and then fall back, gasping for breath. That's why it speaks of, speaks of his strength being dried up. We know that he thirsted on the cross. In fact, it's one of the few things that he says on the cross. I thirst. We also know that it speaks in verse 16 that as these dogs encompass him, this company of evildoers encircles him, what do they do to Christ's hands and feet? They're pierced.
And through this all we see in verse 15, as Christ suffers, he is laid down in the dust of death. We must never forget that Christ truly died on the cross. His full humanity ceased to live at that moment. But yet through it all, Christ did what the kings of Israel were called to do. He entrusted himself to the Father. One of the things that I find so amazing about this psalm is that through it all, David, who is speaking better things by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, expresses complete confidence in the Father. In verses 3 through 5, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. The very fact that this psalm exists as a prayer to God shows as God cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not turned away from the Father. He's turning to the Father. He's trusting in him. Peter reminds us of this, that when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in turn. But when he suffered, he didn't threaten but what did he continue doing in trusting himself to him who judges justly? And so the psalmist foretells of the victory of the king through his suffering. When Isaiah speaks of the anguish of his soul, we see that clearly described here in Psalm 22. And so when we come to the end of the psalm, we see a shift, particularly at verse 22, a shift in tone. And then verses 27 through 31 sort of end with a commentary on what has been unfolded in the psalm's description of the king's suffering. Now, again, we see in verses 22 through 24, the victory described here. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Should we not recognize that the victorious king of the cross deserves our response in worship? Praise him, he says. All of you who are the offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And so... It is from the Lord that our praise must come. That we perform the vows that we've made to him. That God, through his grace 
provides for us to eat and be satisfied, we who are afflicted, so that those who seek the Lord may praise the Lord. May your hearts live how long? Forever. And so we come to the, to the last two stanzas of Psalm 22. And what is brought out here? Well, the king's suffering will be known throughout the entire earth. Listen to what he says in verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember. This is a promise that the gospel will go and reach every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation. And that there will be people from all the ends of the earth who will remember and as they remember and look at what Christ has done, they will turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. As a result of this knowledge of what Christ has done, families of the nations shall bow before the Lord and worship him. Now, what does this all drive us to see? And we find that in verse 28. What belongs to the Lord? For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. This worldwide transformation occurs because Christ is king. The suffering and victory of the suffering king is a declaration of that kingship. And so this psalm ends with worldwide hope. All humanity will bow before the king, even those who have turned to dust because they have died. Look at what he says in verse 29. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. There is a reality here that we must all recognize. That Peter has been reminding us of in 2 Peter chapter 3. That we all will bow before the king Isaiah says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. We know Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 14, as it is written, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And then Paul reminds us, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Why do we do this? Because Christ is king. The message of his kingship established 
through suffering, suffering will be announced throughout the world to people not yet born. Look at verse 31, the last verse of Psalm 22. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. This is, this is written many, many years before you were born. This has been millennia before you were born. And yet you were in view here. You weren't born when David wrote these words. But yet you've heard the message of Christ the King. And his suffering for your sins. And if you've turned to him in faith, you find hope. And so the psalm ends with this culmination. He has done it. He's accomplished his mission. He's conquered. He is victorious. He has shown himself to be king. And so as we've seen this evening, the king and his cross. This is not... Perhaps the way we would have thought the king would show himself to be king. We want a victor. We want a winner. And from a human perspective, the cross represents defeat and judgment. But when we look at what God was doing through the cross, yeah, the cross is a declaration that he has done it. That salvation belongs to the Lord. So be encouraged. Your king has triumphed over sin and death. And then how can we not help but respond in worship? Seeking to glorify him every day in our lives, our conduct, our actions, our thoughts, and our hearts. Jesus is king, and he is the victor of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that Christ is the victorious king. May we rest and trust in him all the more as we seek to glorify your name and to find hope in our great king. Father, dismiss us with your blessing. May we take this hope with us as we go about our day tomorrow, our days this week. Bring us back again safely to worship you, to learn of you, to know our King. We pray this all in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.